Welcome everybody, please take your seats. Today we're going to talk about the importance of collecting evidence. Take your seats, please. You're listening to the Change Academy podcast, and I'm Brock Armstrong. And I'm Monica Reinagel. And this is a show about creating change. And every episode we use our expertise in nutrition, fitness, cognitive behavior theory, plus our <laughs> hundreds of years of coaching hundreds of clients <laughs> to help you move closer to your ideal self. So this episode, we're talking about evidence. It's hard to keep believing that change is possible when all of the evidence that you have seems to point to the contrary. And that's why it's so important to be able to collect some evidence that a different choice is possible. And if that doesn't make sense, I think it will by the end of the episode. But after we had decided that this is what we wanted to tackle this week, we got an amazing email from one of our listeners that is the perfect example of what we're talking about in terms of collecting evidence that a different choice is possible. Yeah, it was very timely. And I, this is basically what the what the email said. I have a longstanding habit of eating in the middle of the night when I wake up around 1 or 2 a.m. This happened every single night for the past four years or so. My family has given me a hard time and berated me, but that didn't stop me. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think it was possible to change, but since August, however, about three or four nights per week, I do not eat when I wake up. I'm still working on it, and I'd like to get to never eating again at 2 a.m., but it all started with one night. I proved to myself I could survive a night and that, yes, Bad habits can be broken and change is possible. I just love this email. I was so excited to get it, especially because it fits so perfectly into this week's episode topic. And one of the things I think is really interesting is that the change in behavior here, she says about three to four nights a week, I don't eat in the middle of the night but not because she doesn't wake up. She still wakes up. Mm. <laughs> but, but despite the fact that she hasn't solved or changed that aspect of it, she still has managed to change the behavior at that time. I thought that was really impressive. I really, I like the self-awareness of this person shows as well, knowing that just one night wasn't enough to clarify it and make it seem like it was completely possible. But once she was doing it three or four times per week, now she really believes it's possible. But having that awareness to know that it had to start with one night Doing it once was enough to be like, okay, well, if I can do it once, let's see if I can do it twice. Let's see if I yeah. can do it three times. <laughs> and then it just sort of cascades from there. And that that sort of self-awareness is what I hope we're cultivating in all of you listeners out there and, and ourselves by reaching out on these topics. Absolutely. So thank you so much for that email. And let's get into our discussion today. So habits or behavior patterns, whether they're good or bad, positive or negative, by definition, these are things that we've repeated over and over again. And not only does that make them difficult to change, but it sometimes makes it hard for us to believe that they can be changed. Mm. And I think this is kind of rational. You know, we have a lot of evidence to the contrary. And I pride myself on being an evidence-based nutritionist. I like mm -hmm. to base my advice and my programs on the evidence and so here it is. Here we are using evidence. We have all this evidence that we cannot change this behavior because we have not 
changed this behavior. Mm, that's a great way to put it. The evidence is there, not because the evidence can't be there. It's because we haven't actually made the effort to to build that evidence up. And in fact, you know, I've often noticed that, well, us humans in general, we stumble across, let's say, an article or a research paper or a social media meme that's floating around that actually supports the evidence that we hold near and dear to our hearts that often is against the, the possibility of change. And we latch on to that right away and we use that subconsciously or maybe even consciously as a as an out or a scapegoat to to sort of prove to ourselves, like, see, I can't change. This meme supports it or this research paper <laughs> supports it or whatever. Or why bother trying? You know, like I'm sure. it's a foregone conclusion. Here's this research paper that shows it can't be done. So yeah. you know, why should it? But of course that's very selective, right? Mm-hmm. If you really went out looking for a research paper to support the possibility of change, I bet you could find one. Well, that's the that's the weird thing is, is we tend to, in the same way that we only remember the big economic crashes rather than the, the times when our retirement savings were actually doing well, uh, we humans tend to latch onto the stuff that actually almost sabotages us or makes us kind of bummed in some ways. It's a very strange thing that we do to ourselves instead of noticing the stuff that actually can propel us into some change. And And I think this goes back to the what we were talking about in the previous episode, in episode 18, about embracing discomfort and, and knowing when it is appropriate to be uncomfortable because we resist discomfort and we don't want to make ourselves uncomfortable we tend to gravitate towards those things that just keep us in that comfortable status quo of, well, see, yeah, change isn't possible because, well, that takes effort and it means that we're going to upset our balance for a little while. And But if we really make ourselves aware of this behavior and start to purposely look for that evidence to support our ability to change, well, I think it can it can really propel us into some meaningful stuff. That's right. Yeah, I think you're really onto something there. You know, finding this evidence that proves that change is impossible is a way for us to avoid taking responsibility for our own behavior and our mm-hmm. own actions. The deck has been stacked against us, and it's not our fault that we're not changing. Right. So not only can we look for evidence to support the fact that change is possible, we can even create Yes. evidence that yes. change is possible, just like our our friend did by, by proving to herself that she could get through a single night without getting up and eating. She created at least one tiny piece of evidence. And I think as she recognized, and as you will recognize, not doing something that you've done every day for a year, or in her case, four years, mm. not doing it for one day is probably not going to be enough to undo the the groove that's been set up by years of daily reinforcement. It's not like our work is done, but it's the beginning of showing our subconscious brain, our conscious brain, that change is in fact a possibility, and that we can work with. We can we can use that as the foundation for further change and further growth. But I guess the important part really is, and we heard this in the email from our listener, and and you also said it yourself, Monica, is that you need to be able to replicate the behavior. 
And sometimes we set ourselves up for failure by by biting off a little more than we can chew. I mean, we, we don't want to set ourselves up for failure by trying to collect evidence on something that is so hard for us to replicate and so hard for us to fit into our lifestyle. We need to collect the evidence, but it can, doesn't have to be some grandiose change of your entire behavior. It just needs to be a little piece of the puzzle that gives you a little bit more momentum in order to change that belief. Yeah, and I think it's also worth pointing out that we don't have to change our beliefs first in order to change our behavior. Mm-hmm. We can actually just Go ahead and change that behavior. And sometimes, ironically, by changing our behavior, that's what makes it possible for us to ultimately change our belief. Well, that goes really well with something I wanted to bring up, which is actually what's called the cycle of belief change. And it's it's actually a, a, a circle. It's, it's exactly <laughs> what you described. Like It's a cyclical thing. And this is the way that the cycle sort of goes. And it doesn't have to be in this particular order because, like I said, it's a circle. But if we start the circle at the 12 o'clock spot, the cycle of belief change is, okay, so you currently believe something. Mm -hmm. Then the next step is to become open to doubt. So you don't have to do anything. You just have to be open to the thought that maybe that belief isn't quite right. Then... Taking that step a little bit further, being open to doubt and moving it into, well, I used to really believe that. Then we move into, I actually want to believe something different. Then we move into the open (laughs) to believe something different. And then we can collect the evidence like we're talking about right now, which brings us back to what we currently believe. Once we've collected enough evidence, our belief is now solid, and that's what we currently believe, which leads into perhaps the the cycle starting all over again, which is being open to doubt, and then used to believe, then want to believe, then open to believe, then collecting the evidence, and so on. And I think this is important to know that it's not a single step, that you don't just go from one belief to collecting evidence to being done. You do need to take it a little bit easy on yourself and remember that there are some small steps in between having one belief and having another belief. And that can really just start with creating the possibility that there is another belief out there. Yeah. And because earlier I I kind of compared what we're talking about today to sort of a a method of scientific inquiry where we try to base things on evidence, maybe it's also worth kind of distinguishing between what we're talking about now and that process. Because when you're in a true scientific inquiry, you don't have a belief, right? You are collecting evidence to help you decide what you think is true. Or maybe you have a suspicion, you have a hypothesis, but then you design studies to help you test that hypothesis. And you'd be just as happy to have it proven false as true. You just want to know one way or the other. And it's an abuse of science, really, to start with a belief and then run around looking for only the evidence that supports your belief and then conveniently ignoring or explaining away all the evidence that undermines your belief or refutes your belief. That's that's not a valid scientific process. That's the kind of science that's funded by the <laughs> by yeah. the company. By the, it's funded by the belief that you're trying to display. Sure. So we're using some of those same words, though. And so this is a little bit different because what we believe about ourselves and when we're trying to make change and create new behaviors, sometimes we do need to create new thoughts to propel those behaviors. And and that's the, the kind of belief that we're working with. You know, what kinds of things is it possible to make true 
you know, we can't make things true in a laboratory experiment. <laughs> they, they are what they are. But in our lives, we often can make new things true by taking different kinds of actions. And sometimes that, that starts with being at least open mm. to question a current belief and seeing what we can do to collect evidence to support a new belief. So maybe worth just kind of distinguishing those two, those two aspects a little bit. Yeah. And I think sometimes that first step of just being open can actually come externally too. There's a, a concept called future belonging. And I think this is a good example of how you can collect evidence from outside yourself because subconsciously we're always making links between our own identity and the success of people who are similar to us. And if that group that's similar to us has achieved the things that we want to achieve or they've achieved great and amazing things, then you can actually think, well, you know, I'm part of that group. Maybe I'm maybe I'm capable of doing that as well. And one of the examples that popped into my head while I was writing about this long time ago, I can't remember when when this actually was Roger Bannister, who's a, a runner, was the first runner to do the four minute mile or break the four minute mile. And when he did that, it kicked off a cascade of similar mile runs quite quite quickly afterwards. Like 46 days later, an Australian runner broke that barrier. Then it was less than a year later, another three runners broke it all in one race. And that sort of idea of future belonging, that concept of future belonging, actually allowed these other runners in other parts of the world to just go, hey, that guy can do it. Well, I can do it. And I think we can apply this same sort of concept to what we're talking about here. It doesn't necessarily have to be your evidence that gets you into motion, at least, in changing this belief. It can be from from people like you. Yeah, that's a great point. And I can so, I'm, I've never come anywhere close to running a four-minute mile, and I oh, doubt <laughs> I ever will. But, but I can so imagine that seeming like, oh, that's kind of the limit of human speed. And, and then once someone has broken through it, all of a sudden, like, why would that limit you any longer? You know, why wouldn't you push to to break that now that it's clear that it's possible? It, it's a perfect example of limiting beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. And how much is possible when we blow those out of the water or someone else does for us. But I still think that when we're looking for most of us, not the four minute milers, that when we're trying to change a behavior, the, the most powerful kind of evidence that we can create to help us support a new belief is the evidence that that we ourselves generate, the yeah. actions that we see ourselves taking. Absolutely. So I'd love to suggest to everybody listening here that if you have a longstanding habit or behavior pattern that's getting in your way, even if you're not quite ready to believe that change is possible, you could start proving that it is possible simply by making a different choice one time. And that's obviously, as Brock was saying, not going to be the end of the story, but it's that chink in the armor that, that allows you to then continue to, to move forward. Yeah. But you know what? That sounds uncomfortable, Monica. Do I, I don't, <laughs> right. don't want to do that. <laughs> For sure. Especially when you, something that you've done over and over and over again, doing something different is going to feel uncomfortable. It's exactly what we were talking about in the last episode. But if once we've done it one time, that means it's possible to do it twice or four times or six times. And each time we do it, it gets a little bit less uncomfortable and gains a little bit more momentum. And that momentum that habits pick up when, when they're repeated 
that goes both ways, right? You've often talked about which wolf are you going to feed? Mm. And, um, you know, you can, you can feed the good habit. You can feed the bad habit. Either way, <laughs> you're adding evidence to that pile. So you want to make sure that you're fueling those good habits and starving the unwanted ones. When you bring up a really good point there too, as far as like how many times is the right amount of times to to mm. collect this evidence before it actually is meaningful for you. And I'd like to to posit that it really depends on a, a number of varieties. Like it's not going to be universal for every habit that you have. It's going to be dependent on how long you've been practicing that habit, how how much your identity is actually hinging on that habit, and and maybe even like how uh, how desperately you are ready to to change that habit. All of these things can factor in. So we can't give you an answer of you just have to do it five and a half times and yes. you'll be you'll be set. It's like that myth of it takes 21 days to make a habit. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not that cut and dry. But I think it's really worth asking that question. Another thing it occurs to me is you were talking about the things that might determine how many pieces of counter evidence you would need to collect would also be how different the new behavior is from the current behavior. Sometimes we're mm. just looking to make a small shift. Sometimes we're looking for a 180 degree shift. So our friend was trying to not get up in the middle of the night, but somebody else might be just trying to go to bed half an hour earlier than they usually do, you know, or get up a little bit earlier or something. So the the uh, the distance or the difference between the current and the desired habit probably also will play into how much counter evidence it'll take before you start to believe that change is possible. And how noticeable the benefit is, I'd say as well. Mm, mm-hmm. Like going to bed a half an hour early may not be hard to to execute, or it may not be that that life changing in in execution. But the results of it actually might make a world of difference in like just feeling more energy the next day, or or waking up with your alarm instead of hitting snooze several times. So sometimes the the benefits might be a lot more noticeable and and therefore be a lot more motivating. Yeah, there's just so much interesting stuff to explore here on this topic of evidence and belief and how we change them and what we collect. Maybe we ought to try to pull this together into some takeaways. Yeah, well, I know the lab experiment for this week is going to really solidify things for, for everybody. But first of all, here's here's what I think are the takeaways. So the first thing is you can't lie to yourself don't try. We've talked about this before in, in other episodes. You can't actually lie to yourself. You need to get evidence to actually convince your your brain, your subconscious, your conscious brain that this is true and possible and also worth doing. Yeah. Also, evidence can come, like we discussed, it can come internally or externally. But like Monica said, that external evidence doesn't really make the change. It just helps you sort of move a little bit quicker into collecting that internal evidence, which is where the real money is. It also takes deliberate practice to collect enough evidence and to make it stick. One success is unlikely to convince your inner skeptic that this is possible for the rest of your life. Oh, for sure. My inner skeptic would be like, right, it's a fluke. It's yes. <laughs> the it's the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> exactly. And finally, habits that have good evidence behind them, well, they gain momentum and they take on a life of their own. Yeah, so let's do a lab experiment. What do you say? Yes. Okay, first, choose a behavior or a habit that you have tried but failed to change in the past. 
Maybe you've tried once, maybe you've tried a hundred times, maybe the past is three weeks, maybe it's 30 years, whatever. <laughs> pick your pick your behavior. Now, those past failed attempts, whatever they were, could be considered evidence that it's never going to be possible for you to change this behavior. But your challenge is to collect just one piece of counter evidence, either an example of someone in a similar situation or even better, one time in the past or in the future that you actually succeed in changing this longstanding behavior, even if it's only once. And then think about how many pieces of counter evidence you would need to collect in order to believe that you do in fact have the ability to change this pattern in a more lasting way. And that is going to be that number that's really going to be very individual, but see if you can put a number or a range on it just so that you have something to shoot for. And then finally, start collecting and counting (laughs) that counter evidence. And, you know, you may even find that it doesn't take as many pieces of evidence as you thought it would to start believing something new about yourself. Yeah. If the evidence is strong enough, that number may actually shrink quite rapidly. Yeah, but this is just a great way to get started. You know, there's actually a, a similar thing just to, to finish up in many versions of, of therapy, but in cognitive behavior therapy called immersion therapy. And I actually went through this myself, where you actually expose yourself to something that you're afraid of or that causes anxiety or kicks off depression or whatever. Let's say it's snakes or being in crowded locations or something. And you expose yourself to that in larger and larger doses until you collect the evidence that you can actually be near a snake or (laughs) in a large crowd without getting bitten by it and and killed or smothered or whatever you happen to be worried about. And and it's sort of a a little more easier to chew version of immersion therapy that we're suggesting here. Yeah, for sure. No snakes. No snakes. No snakes. (laughs) Yes, no (laughs) snakes involved. And you know where else there isn't any snakes is over at changeacademypodcast.com, which is our (laughs) website. And that's the place you can sign up for our newsletter. You can find all the show notes. You can find the lab experiments or for the last few episodes anyway are in there in the show notes if you need to reference them. You can also find us on social media. We are change ACPOD, change ACPOD. Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can also drop us a note at hello at changeacademypodcast.com. Send us a, an email or send us a note on any of the social media platforms and let us know what you're working on and, and what we can uh, do to help. And maybe it'll even turn into its own episode. So thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll be back soon. Take care. All right. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Change Academy podcast.